We're going to be jumping back into Luke chapter 14 and looking a little more slowly at a section that uh, I really rather rushed through at the end of last session and probably didn't do a good job of explaining myself. So we'll slow down and I'll have opportunity to do that a little bit better for us all. So let's simply uh, begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, enlighten the hearts of our minds with your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us with the blood of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, that all our doings in life may be pleasing to you. Especially do we ask your blessings upon this time in which we study together your word. May it enrich us and strengthen us that we can fight the good fight, that we can don the full armor that you give to us, and that we can take up and take hold of the sword of the Spirit, which is your word, that the evil one and his forces may have no power over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, if you do have questions or or uh, comments, get my attention somehow. What I'm seeing here on my screen, not a lot of uh, not a lot of faces, just some names of you guys who are online. So I can't see you waving or anything. So, and those of you in person, you know, David or whomever has a microphone or the ability, just get my attention. Happy to happy to chat with you. Okay, so Luke 14, something that. Uh, a section that your Bible probably has subtitled the cost of discipleship. And it's not, it's not bad. Although that phraseology, that language has gotten some baggage as of late, but maybe best to just start from up, take it uh, on its own terms. So at verse 25 of chapter 14, We read, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So I think the obvious, or at least I hope it's obvious, is that Christ's claim upon those who would be his disciples is absolute. It's the, He's not claiming to be our buddy or our friend or the first amongst many. He is claiming to be the exclusive God, the exclusive master, the exclusive teacher so and and to such extreme contrast that we would and see this is where I wouldn't weaken it. I don't mind the translation hate. It's a kind of wooden translation. The word can be translated softer, but I think it's really rather expressive of what Jesus is saying that fealty and loyalty to him comes above those whom we would otherwise have fealty and loyalty to in such an extreme matter that it's that hate is a good way of expressing it. The distance is so great. So obviously he's listed those that we would have the closest earthly ties to parents, 
wife, children, siblings, these earthly relationships and all the love and faithfulness and loyalty that are expressed therein are as darkness to light when compared with that to which he is calling us. It's an extreme call um, precisely because he is God in flesh and demanding our utmost loyalty to him. I actually think that strangely, as is the way with Jesus, I mean, this very frequently strikes our ears as law, as off-putting, but as is so often the way with Jesus, as you meditate upon his words, you see a different flavor and you see a different wisdom emerge. That if you just accept his words at face value, even if you can't understand them, even if your heart recoils against them, believe and hold firm to his words as they are. And eventually, and in due time, he'll lead you to a deeper and proper understanding. The deeper and proper understanding of these of these words ultimately is found in this, that we're created to be fulfilled by him and by no others, not by parents, not by spouse, not by wife, not by children, not by brothers and sisters, not by anything here on earth, but by him. And in fact, unless we realize that, or maybe a better way to put it would be insofar as we realize that, we're going to achieve, and um, I don't think achieve is a wrong word, we're going to come to or achieve a freedom that is absolutely essential for us as human beings, definitely, but as men, even more acutely and specifically. So I mentioned this, uh, I mentioned this last week, and if necessary, I can kind of spell out some of my presuppositions, but I think the text stands alone with this, that even as you look at the language, it's wife, not spouse. It's wife, not husband or wife. And what's going to come next are distinctively masculine examples, the building of a tower. And towers are, I mean, more often than not for defense. That's the purpose. You're, you, have an, you have someone watching on the tower, uh, maybe even shooting arrows down if necessary. But you have this building of a tower, which is not something females then uh, or really even now do. And likewise, the next example Jesus is going to bring up is war. And of course, um, he's going to bring up kingship, which is necessarily masculine, and war, which is necessarily masculine or properly masculine. So I do think, and maybe here I'll just share one of my presuppositions. I'm thinking in terms of the ordering that St. Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11, particularly that man does not come from woman, but woman from man. Paul's taking us all the way back to the origin that Eve is taken from Adam. Likewise, Paul says that man was not made for woman, 
but woman for man. Paul is simply unapologetic on these points, and I think there's such profound wisdom in these points as to be gospel liberation. And that's ultimately what I think we're going to see here and what Jesus is giving us too. So the ordering that Paul sets forth is that the head and glory of man is Christ. And um, man is the head of woman. Okay, so that's that's where I'm queuing on the immediacy of this language. Obviously, it's going to go to all disciples uh, who would, you know, all people who would be disciples of Jesus. But there's a secondary sense in which this applies to females and and, and a tertiary sense in which it applies to children. I think that this is a profoundly masculine call as the head of the human race, as head of our familial units to give ourselves over entirely to Christ at the expense of all other fleshly, earthly relationships, only then will we have proper ordering and proper freedom with which to conduct those vocations Christ has given us. So if Satan can just pry you away from Christ on account of the love you have for your parents— or pry you away from Christ on account of the love, uh, the love you have for your wife, or if she can pry you away from Christ because you love her more than you love Christ. Likewise with your children, right on down the line, then you're not free. You're bound. You're leveraged. You have a weak spot. You can be pried away from him for whom you, as the head of the family, were created. And so there's a right ordering here. And this is what I mean. We're so tangled up in the modern age. Feminism has just wrecked us. And it's wrecked our understanding of the family as a unit. It's wrecked our understanding of male headship. And so we've got a real hard time like understanding these passages and understanding how they really are acutely pertinent um, to us as men. So, Maybe that's enough of an explanation. I'll pause in just a minute and see if you have any, you know, questions or concerns about what I've stated. I know it's cutting very deeply against the grain of popular culture and the way we think and this sort of egalitarian, my wife and I are equal. We complement each other. We complete each other. We're soulmates. I mean, this is all frankly uh, post enlightenment and capital R, romantic, romanticism, nonsense. And ultimately, it's going to wrap us around the axle and cause us to be quite effeminate then when we hear our Lord's words and sort of quell and quail and and not understand, you know, oh, how could the cost be so high? Nobody can pay this cost. It's exactly the wrong way to read this scripture. Christ's claim upon us is absolute and necessarily so that bound only to him, we would have the freedom to conduct ourselves vocationally uh, as we ought, without fear. Okay, so let me pause there. Let me see if there's any pushback or uh, <laughs> any reaction, anyone want to want to speak up, um, pro or con. I'm, I just want to give you opportunity. So, Pastor, I, I don't know if you can hear me okay. Yeah. yeah. So... I mean, I think what you're saying is exactly right. I, 
I see that in the scriptures as well. Well, and um, um, so I guess my question is, is untangling this disorder is part of our sanctification process, is it not? Is it? I mean, even though I, I may completely concur with with all of this, and I do, um, I'm not there yet, you know, and so <clears throat> I feel like is it. It, is, is it something that's just part of the, you know, as we move toward Christ and we become more, um, I think you told me once when I asked you about the Lord's Supper, is it that Christ is coming into us or are we more uh, being comprehended in Christ? And I think you said it was the latter. So as that happens, this is this is a process, right? This is not easy to get there, I guess. Not necessarily fighting the culture, but our own sinful impulses, well, Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. It reminds me tangentially of something rather ironic, and that is when we maybe particularly as men um, and men within our vocations, father, husband, we often think, okay, a key part of sanctification is to die to ourselves, to live for another language that generally is taken uh, out of uh, as a reflection out of like Ephesians 5. But the way in which we die to ourselves is very often conceived of entirely wrongly. So that we need to die not only to ourselves, but we also need to die to the way we understand dying to ourselves. (laughs) So... I very often a husband thinks, well, I need to die to myself, which means I need to um, let my wife have more leadership. No, that would be precisely a modern idea to which you need to, in fact, die to. Okay, so this right economy or ordering up the household and its connection with creation and its connection with the law written into our hearts All these things are one. And this is something like that the scriptures um, describe as the perfect law of liberty or the law of Christ. And what this is showing is that once Christ has set us free from the condemnation of the law, once Christ has set us free from any need to justify ourselves by keeping the law, the nature of the law, or really rather our perception of the law itself, changes. The law doesn't, in fact, change. We change in relationship to the law. A part of why John will even say like this, an old commandment I give you, that you love one another, but it's rather a new commandment that I give you, because it changes shape and changes form. Now, this is, so this is what we're rediscovering, is that if the devil is leading us into anomia, lawlessness, that's in fact the definition of sin, disorder, disordering of what God has ordered, then to be set free from that entanglement is precisely to be conformed into the image of the law and ordering that God has established. That's why it's a law of liberty. The Lutherans are better than any other tradition on this point. I'm, you know, again, it's just one of the reasons I'm so proud to be Lutheran is if you look at the formula of 
Concord, and particularly Article 6 on the, the third use of the law, as it's called, this is articulated better than any other place I've found it. And it's the, it, the law in the life of a Christian sets us free. It, the law itself sets us free. It sets us free from all manner of thinking of what's good or what's God-pleasing that may, not, that may not in fact be. And part and parcel of that is this idea, like, so to bring it back around to this particular conversation, you know, the church for a long time has taught this egalitarianism and has taught against hierarchy and has um, really said, hey, Christianity is poses no challenge for you, men. We'll just lower the bar lower and lower and lower. Do as little as you have to do. There's no cost. We'll make it absolutely cheap. And men have just receded away from that. Because it's contrary to our masculinity. It's contrary to our design and our nature. So to be extricated from that is indeed, paradoxically, to be told, look, you have to hate father and mother, spouse, wife in particular, son and daughter, brothers and sisters. And then Christ is going to go on to say like, if you don't think that this is going to cost you, then you don't understand. So really rather paradoxically, then by ramping up the demand, this harmonizes with our masculinity and it, and it harmonizes with the, with the truth, with the ontology of reality that Christ is God and demands us as males, as heads of, the, of our households, to be conformed into his image and he as our head and we answerable to him. And then likewise down the chain of, of we being the head of our wives and um, then together forming the, the parental unit as it were um, from which children come and into which children are conformed. So this is the, this is the strange function of why the law in the life of a Christian ends up liberating over time and why these words of Christ in this section so often hit our modern ears as, Oh, this is law. I don't know what to do with this. I, I quail underneath it, which is again, just believe it, hold to it. Even if you don't understand it. And in due time, Christ will show you how this I'll use the word mindset for lack of a better one, this mindset is the most profoundly liberating mindset one can have, and in fact is absolutely necessary for conducting oneself faithfully in this life. Luther, um, in A Mighty Fortress, take they are um, life, goods, how does that go? Goods, fame, child, and wife, let these all be gone they yet have nothing won the victory ours remaineth but did you hear what he just said like the devil is going to leverage and he's at his most powerful he's going to leverage those who are most dear to you against you you have to have that connection with christ that he is your lord and none other and let all others be taken let all others you know be damned let all others be hated I'm not going to turn my back on Christ, my Lord. 
that is the freedom to which we're called. And if this strikes us as like unnatural, it's because we're unnatural. This is the natural and proper order. This is what it means to have a God. This is what it means to have a master and we be his slaves, to have a teacher and we be his disciples. And this is the, again, this is essential to humanity in a general sense, but it's essential particularly to masculinity, to we who are called to build the tower of defense and to wage the war, whether physical or spiritual, in this case, spiritual, in defense of those who are ordered underneath our care. All right, I've already talked too long. I'm sorry to be long-winded about that, but I, I want to do my best to not be uh, misunderstood, um, but to try to communicate these to a way uh, to you all in a way that um, you know is truthful and but also appealing. You know, you'll grasp hold of it. Yeah, a comment. Um, I looked up in the um, Concordia Bible handbook uh, the word hate. And it's pretty clear that they say there's two two ways of using the word hate. And the first is to dislike, regard as ugly and wrong, and the opposite of love. And this is it's used like this in Psalm and I think in Matthew. And then there's a second definition it says to withdraw from or avoid someone or something so that a proper relationship with God can be kept. And they say, this is how it's been used in Luke 14. So I think this helps me because when we use the word hate, we think of something just disgusting and something you want to get rid of or something you want to hurt or whatever. And, but it, they're using it to as something to separate. So we won't be bound say, to wife and child, we are separated from them so that we can have a proper relationship with God. And that's a little different from hating them, at least. In, in, but you mentioned this last last week when you talked about you know, the emotional part of, of the word hate. So like I say, they made it clear that there are two different ways of using it, the, the word hate, according to the uh, Bible handbook of Concordia. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair point and a, and a good distinction to bring up. When Christ is using hate here and when I'm using it, I'm not using it as like an emotion. I'm not using it as disgust. I think I mentioned this last week, like, is is Christ here undermining the fourth commandment? Is Christ here undermine, undermining the sixth commandment? By no means. Uh, in fact, he's establishing them. And that's really rather my point. You have to be, you have to be freed from idolatrous love of father and mother, wife, children, and siblings before you can actually and truly love them. Make sense? Right. Okay, I'm not. If somebody's trying to make a comment, I'm not quite hearing. All right, maybe that was an error. Okay, okay. So yeah, I don't want to belabor the point. Um, I mean, I think I think I've I've tried to make my case as best I can. So we can just continue on unless there. I'll give one more opportunity in case there's somebody who wants to say something. Okay, very good. So let's just carry on. 
Um, and I will point out too something that I haven't, you know, and, and this kind of helps clarify to Radford's point um, that after, so we're just at the end of verse 26, that after he's mentioned the familial relationships, he says, yes, and even his own suke, which can be soul or life, life is a fine translation. Yes, even his own life. So to hate one's life is an essential part. And that's going to get flushed out with the cross bearing. Um, so again, this isn't some emotional disgusting. It's that you take your very life and essence and it, you see it as 100% absolutely in submission to Christ. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not really willing to have Christ as your God. And so you're excluding yourself from discipleship. So he cannot be my disciple. Christ will here also use parallel language of is unworthy of me. And that's precisely because he's our maker. He has that absolute claim on us. Now, I don't, again, I don't see this as like law per se. I see this as for one who gives himself over to Christ as gospel in the immediate sense and it because it's connection to him and it's life in him not life in oneself which is a delusion and then i see like it in a that law of liberty at work here to be free from yourself um that is to say uh to value his life over your life to have no life apart from his life is that liberating law all right, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross, so the life is cruciform, Christ is the crucified, so to be his disciple is to be conformed into his image, and specifically to be conformed into his crucifixion, which is not again, it's not merely like this passive suffering. To be crucified is the ultimate act of faith and the ultimate act of love. It's to have God and man turned against you and to perform what is your duty. That's the raw masculinity of Christ in the true sense. And it's utterly liberating. It's who we are meant to be. And so we are being conformed into his image by bearing our own cross and coming after him. And yeah, Christ is laying out like, look, I mean, Christ in many places teaches that the forgiveness of sins is free. It's not conditioned upon works. That salvation is free. It's not conditioned upon works. In many and various ways, Christ teaches this. But when it comes down to the actual experience in this life of being his disciple, he absolutely doesn't shy away from the fact that it's going to be difficult. This is the narrow door that we agonize to get through. This is the way of the cross. That's what this life is if we'll follow him. If we follow him, we can guarantee that the world is going to hate us. So he has no problem just spelling this out. And so a parallel statement then, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
At verse 28, we get into the next two verses are uh, considered by many to be parables. So that's why we're here. And so 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower? Again, towers have defensive purposes. And this is a male vocation, building a tower. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So what we've seen, and I know this is hard because we're going so slow, but if we were to zoom out and read chapter 13, chapter 14, um, and on into 15, but if we were to read these really quickly, what you see is an increasing hostility between Jesus and the crowds that are following him. Because the crowds that are following him are following him for all the wrong reasons. And so Jesus is saying, like, you know, in, in effect, he's saying, you don't get it. Um, you, you're following me because you you think that this is going to be easy and you only want earthly blessing and benefit from it. It's neither. Okay? So if you are truly going to be my disciple, then you need to understand that this isn't going to go well for you if you're just going to build the foundation and give up on it. You'll wish that you never even started building. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be a fool. So if you are truly going to follow me, you have to understand that my claim is absolute and I can promise and guarantee you suffering. I can promise and guarantee you a cross and I can promise and guarantee you it's going to cost. Are you on board or not? So again, I think that this is a very masculine way of speaking unto men. Now, it's holistic, but nobody's going to talk this way to women or children. And that's all, you know, that's my contention. So does it apply to them? Yeah, it does, just in a general way and not nearly as acutely as it applies to us as heads of household. All right, so I think the parable itself is clear as can be. Um, but let me pause there and see if there's anything that's, you know, um, maybe any details or aspects or applications that are confusing to you. I think Christ's point is just straightforward and simple. Sometimes people make it complex because they don't like his point. <laughs> they think that this is somehow contrary to grace alone or something or contrary to faith alone or something like that. It, it clearly isn't. Yeah, Pastor, um, the, uh, if you could just talk about the application of it, uh, maybe a couple of case studies that are a little bit as to how, you know, are we to withdraw completely? I mean, where do we, how do we function in this way as we cling to Christ? Well, where I, again, I mean, color me strange, I, because I, I tend to see these things as, yeah, they, they, you know, Jesus is a master in that with a single teaching, he does law and gospel. I think that there's a profound gospel act, application of this, of this. And again, this is a masculine kind of gospel. 
I, I probably, I don't know that I talk to my kids this way, but let's say that you're really struggling. Let's say that you failed in some cataclysmic way, or let's say that the grind of the Christian life has just got you down. What would be an application of these words? I would put it this way. Have you laid the foundation? Have you built so much and you're going to give up now? What good is all the labor? What good is all the suffering if you're going to throw in the towel right now? Bring it to completion and trust yourself to the Lord. Never does he require you to be morally perfect, to be his disciple. He knows you have need of his forgiveness. But he also knows that you have need of the challenge he presents you to finish the tower, to complete what you have begun. And I, so I think that there's an, a motivating aspect um, of these verses in application. Don't be the one that men and angels laugh at because you gave up. Christ is with you. His forgiveness is with you. His spirit is with you. Finish the tower. So that, that Barry would be an application where I, you know, it has a kind of gospel function to it of strengthening weak hands, of um, making strong limbs that have grown weak, of calling men back to action, you know, um, that, that idea of, uh, <laughs> That's kind of a cheesy song, but, you know, it was popular, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. But that song that has like one refrain that repeats about 15 million times, I get knocked down and I get back up again. You know, there's there's something to that in the Christian life that there's nothing like a clean victory in the Christian life. Um, as such, the Christian life is punctuated by getting knocked down over and over and over by getting crucified. But the essence of the Christian life is that you get back up again and again. You build the tower. Yes, you are going to be crucified. You are going to die. But that is in fact according to plan because you are going to be raised in glory even as you suffered in humiliation. So stay the course. And I think that that's then the essence of the, this encouraging part of like, like take stock if you're the disciple of Christ and um, don't be one who starts and doesn't finish. Does that make some sense? So that there could also be a message for the church there too, right? Not just me as an individual disciple, but you look at the message that is American Christianity and therapeutic moralistic deism, or, you know, we just need to be nice and accept everyone as they are. That would be another way in which this masculine message would run counter to that whole presentation of the church, I think, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, you know, this is a bizarre thing, but the church in trying to soften it and make it easy and arms wide open to everybody and just keep lowering the bar and, but wait, there's more. 
you know, for the low, low price of, but wait, we'll throw in three more, throw in a little more Jesus dust. The church's attempt to do this actually, I mean, not only is it dishonest, but it, it has the it has the un- intended effect of driving men away and demoralizing men who are fighting the fight because if it's so cheap and it's so easy and it's just to be given away and on and on, there's no challenge. And um, it's just all, you know, sort of come and get your felt needs met, the moralistic therapeutic deism, like just apply these 10 steps and it'll all be better. You know, if that's all that does is really, eventually turns off the masculine spirit. So Christ is going to talk about building a tower. He's going to talk about war. He's going to talk about danger. He's going to talk about a cross. He's going to talk about an impossible uh, accomplishment, but it's going to be accomplished. And he who has begun this good work in us is going to bring it to fulfillment, but he's going to do that precisely through these jarring words say, you know, in effect, Kind of, it's a little bit like a, like a coach at, at halftime, you know, when you're down by a bunch, he's, he's going to say to you something like, did you think this was going to be easy? Did you think they were going to roll over? Do you think they were just going to hand you the championship? And, you know, and that, that I think is very similar, very parallel to what Christ is doing here. Um, in challenging the crowds and challenging those who would be his disciples. And again, I think he's doing this for us and for our salvation. He's doing this to stir up within us that, in a sense, human spirit, but more acutely masculine spirit, um, that we would fight the good fight, run the race, all those, all those images of, um, athletic, accomplishment that St. Paul draws out. I think they're we're all in the same neighborhood as um, these passages from Jesus. Pastor? Yes, sir. Yes, Brad. Um, I was just thinking, uh, you know, David prays so often for forgiveness and, you know, his sides are burning because he's being disciplined. He's miserable because he's being disciplined. And I, I think we can all identify that. But he also prays to be vindicated. And, and that's something that I've had a hard time ever praying for, to be vindicated. And I'm wondering, how, how, how do we as men in our family, how do, we, how do we incorporate that? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think, I think um, as, as Lutherans, maybe, uh, maybe we've unintentionally suffered from this idea of the quote-unquote theology of the cross as a theology of just losing. And what sort of gets absorbed is this idea of like, well, it's just my job to retain the faith while I lose and lose and lose some more. And in yeah. the end, I'm, I'm just kind of saved by the skin of my teeth and I get the bare minimum of heaven and that's it. And I kind of lose and all the people who went to hell, you know, we just kind of lost them. And the whole thing's couched in these terms of like loss and losing and disappointment and not being able to make it. And, you know, the Psalms, again, I, I love them because they've taught me to pray and think in ways that the American church has forbidden. <laughs> and the American church either explicitly or implicitly damns. So one of these, uh, one of these is this idea of vindicate me, um, judge me, judge between me and another, 
um, bring hell upon my enemies, uh, cause us to prevail. As you pray the Psalms, you're going to be praying all kinds of things that the American church, again, whatever denominational sign happens to be over the door, has forbidden. I mean, and, and you know, look, I love being Lutheran. I am critical of the Lutheran church sometimes. We took a bunch of these Psalms out of our hymnal because we can't handle them. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And it really bespeaks the uh, feminine nature of our culture and the feminization um, that's encompassed our thinking. So this idea of of, um, vindication, we always start with the Psalms with Christ. And Christ is crucified as um, the world's greatest sinner and as a man hated and despised, as an evildoer among all evildoers. And so he's put to death under the judgment of the whole world, that this man is, is undeserving of life, unfit to breathe the air that we breathe. The vindication of God comes, in a sense, twofold with his resurrection, but ultimately when it is this very Christ whom God gives to judge the earth. That's the vindication over the world that damned him. So the same thing needs to be embraced by us as as Christians in general and as Christian men in specific, that when we speak the truth, and that truth is going to be deprogramming ourselves and the socialization, the lies of the world that we've bought into, deprogramming ourselves and deprogramming others, we can't expect a pat on the back. For this, In fact, the world's going to hate us. So as we fight evil with good, as we fight lies with truth, and this is as general as you want. This doesn't just have to do narrowly with justification. It has to do with everything. We fight evil with good and, and lies with truth. We are going to be hated. We're going to be hated by people in our own family. We're going to be hated by people in the workplace. We're going to be hated by people in the church. There's going to be papal bulls written against us, even if the Pope in this case happens to be our own synodical president. And we need to simply realize that, you know, so why am I going to do this? The world's going to hate me. The world's going to think I'm evil. My reputation's going to be trashed. I'm going to end up losing. Here And here's the pivot. Vindicate me, oh God. And we say that not in self-righteousness. We say that as those standing with Christ betting everything on the fact that he's right, betting everything on the fact that the world is wrong, betting everything on the fact that the cost we pay is ultimately worth it. Because insofar as we stood, and nobody stands perfectly except for Christ, but insofar as we stood, we stood with him. And insofar as he is vindicated and we have stood with him, we will be vindicated. And that's a play for victory. That's the, I mean, that's the beautiful masculine language all throughout the letters um, that Christ uses to address the churches in Revelation, where over and over it's uh, the Nikao, Nike, be victorious, overcome. To the one who overcomes, I will give. As if the entire thing is, the entire life is a matter of overcoming and conquering. So we, we lose sight of this, I think, sometimes, and it's kind of like meekness and humility, both wrongly understood, if you heard my talk on Sunday, um, this theology of the cross, wrongly understood. It ends, up, it ends up couching Christianity in terms as if we're all in this just to be losers. I, 
uh, there could not be a more alien thought uh, to the scriptures, Old and New Testament. We are in this to fight. We are in this to win. And uh, in the end, we will be vindicated. So, yeah, huge part. Vicar's sermon, the text coming up this Wednesday, the crescendo gospel to the prophet Joel is God avenging his saints. The I mean, just like drink that in. When's the last time, uh, I mean, uh, in the church or how frequently in the church do you hear that presented as gospel, that God will destroy our enemies? I, I mean, I, oh, who would ever think that? Well, that just shows how milk toast and effeminized we've all become. This is the shout of, of the scriptures. It's the shout of joy of the saints and angels of revelation. God finally brings it all to an end and gives us the victory. The God of peace crushes Satan, not only under Jesus' feet, but under our feet as well. That's what we're all angling for. I'm not in this to lose. <laughs> <laughs> and neither should you all be. You know, we're we're in this to build the tower. We're in this to uh, win the victory. Hopefully that helps. I'm sorry I'm being long-winded, but I feel like some of this is uh, parched ground. And uh, so if I'm really yeah. heavily on it, I apologize. No, that's great. Thank you. All right. Any other thoughts? Or we want to we want to jump on to the next one. All right, let's do that then. So 31, or what king? And it is interesting, I mean, just in this sense, that Jesus is likening those who would be his disciples to those who would build a tower, those who would have the means to do this, and to a king. Already, I mean, and not to be missed is this elevated kind of status. I mean, think about him talking about building a skyscraper. Okay, or think about him talking about you strategizing, you know, some war against China, okay, <laughs> or something like that. He's bringing you in, he's bringing the common man into an elevated position. All right, verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. All right. So the parable, the point of the parable is very clear. Like, obviously, any king who has 10,000 against a king with 20,000 is going to stop and think if he can actually accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Okay. And that's the whole point of, of discipleship. So think clearly about your commitment to Jesus, be committed. And those have been themes previous. This one takes on a little different flavor, no doubt, but the principle this is essentially the same. Okay, 32, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, now this just has to do with battle strategy and the in the earlier centuries, they can't all just get on their ships and planes and go home. If he's if a king with 20,000 has already bared all the expense and time of getting his men near to you, he's not likely to listen to you. 
Okay, so while he's still a long way off before he's put all this invested cost into it, that's the time to consider. That is to say, early on, right away, is the time to consider and send your delegation and ask for terms of peace. Okay, so again, just taking the parable at superficial level, it's better if you recognize right away that Christ is asking too much and walk away. It's better for you than to invest yourself, have all this blood spilled, and then give up. Okay, Realize, oh, no, I wasn't in it for this. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't realize he was God and would demand everything from me. It'd be better, if those are your two options, it'd be better to not even begin. It'd be better to send the delegation for peace and not let any blood spill. Don't, don't suffer anything. So again, there's a masculine taunt underlying this, but a taunt in a good sense, a taunt the way a football coach taunts his players. And that is, look, if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, get defeated or wuss out or you're worried about that, it better not even to start. Better to just get this off your plate right away. Send your delegation and get peace. Don't go to war. Don't go to battle. Pastor? Yes, sir. It's Gordon. Yeah. Um, the question, he would have been speaking to uh, Jewish people knowledgeable of, you know, more or less, they weren't scholars. Not His disciples weren't. Okay. Um, but there are several times in the Old Testament where the uh, Hebrews were way outnumbered by the enemy, but they had God on their side. Is that... Could that be inferred here as well? Absolutely. I'm so glad you stated that. I think that's exactly the point. Exactly the point is you, is is ultimately you reflect on this. You go, well, I got 20. If I got 10,000, he's got 20,000. Well, I don't have an earthly shot at this. Anybody who knows the Old Testament scriptures goes, yeah, that's right. And that is the moral of this parable is you of your own strength don't have any power to accomplish this, but guess who does? And Gordon, I couldn't put it better than you just did. The entire story of the Old Testament is that if Yahweh is with you, it doesn't matter how many fight on your side, you're going to be victorious. And I think that that is ultimately the thrust of this is precisely that, that you, you know, if, hey, if you're going to, if you're not going to be able to make it, don't even start. If you're going to try to accomplish this on your own strength, It's not going to go well for you, but if you've got the Lord and you do, and you've, and and Christ is your master and you are his disciple, then what have you to fear? Then what have you to fear? You know, I think of, I think of that story of Gideon. That's like the story par excellence where, you know, God chooses, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Maybe one of, you know, can look it up quick, but it's something like God's like, okay, go get 3000 fighting men, you know, against this insurmountable army. And like 3000 is like just this drop in the bucket. It's not going to do anything. And then God continues to call it down until it's like 300. And it's like 300 of the worst soldiers, like the guys who dip their mouths into the water, like, and drink like dogs who are, you know, obviously have no awareness they're on the battlefield or anything else. Like, so God, God calls down the forces and takes the worst of the worst and says, okay, I think, I think the odds are sufficiently against us. Let's go win. (laughs) 
Yeah. So Gordon, I really appreciate your comment because I think that that is ultimately the thrust of what our Lord is getting at with this particular parable. All right, let's just uh, let's work our way through the end of it, um, and then let's let's pause and reflect a little bit more. So, just picking up kind of arbitrarily at verse thirty-two again. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, and that really is sort of the end. And then thirty-three. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that final line invites us to reflect. So are you of your own strength going to be able to, with your 10,000 to beat the 20,000? No. Are you of your own strength going to be able to complete this tower? No. So you have to renounce all you have. That is to say, like, hey, if I throw everything I got at this, I'm not going to do it. I renounce all I have and commend myself into who and whose strength. Whom and whose strength, however that goes. And the answer there is Christ. So if, but if I am, if, if Christ is my master, if I've renounced myself, my family, my resources, my abilities, if I've renounced it all and thrown myself just 100% into Christ, as it goes for you, Lord Jesus, so it goes for me. I cast my lot with you. Then the victory is going to be ours. We will go through the cross, but we will have resurrection. We will, the tower will seem like it's not being built, but in the end, it will be built. The fight may seem like it's humanly impossible to win. It is. But with Christ, the victory will be ours. And I do believe that that's the nature of this final reflection that Christ gives us. It's a capstone. And in such a beautiful way that Jesus has, it's a, it's a capstone. And it turns the entire parables, inviting you to review them. And understand then that gospel aspect of renouncing yourself and commending yourself entirely to him as your master, as your teacher. So just to point this out, um, verse 34, there's this neat little paragraph break put in our English Bibles. Uh, It shouldn't be there. What flows immediately in the manuscripts is salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how how shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer, it's rhetorical. The answer is impossible. It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this then... um, sort of wraps up the section. And we've reflected on this um, parable in a different context. I believe it was in Matthew's gospel. We reflected on this at the Sermon on the Mount. You can see that this is a recurrent teaching Jesus has. But I mean, 
I don't really even know how to articulate this any better than our Lord himself does, that we are, we are called as his disciples to be salt and to be light. And precisely what makes us salt and light is being united with him and being fearlessly united with him, united with him, hell or high water, united with him despite our sins or failures, despite the world turning its back on us, despite family and friends turning their back on us, despite whatever losses we may take or incur, we cast our lot entirely with him, knowing that he will ultimately give us the victory. And knowing that um, being salt and light in him is the ultimate calling of what it means to be a human being. And I think if we even just pause and reflect on that invitation of the cross, specifically to take up your cross and follow him, I mean, the cross is the greatest, the greatest accomplishment of the entire age. From Adam to the close of the age, there is no greater accomplishment. There is no greater glory. There is no greater achievement or victory than what Christ accomplishes through his faithful death and victory through the cross rising up from the grave in resurrection. I I don't care what you think, like Alexander the Great, I mean, whatever famous general you like who fought so triumphantly in such and such a war, whoever sacrificed himself so nobly to, for his family or for state, whoever accomplished with his, you know, great skyscrapers or amount of money. I mean, all this stuff is dust under the feet of our Lord Jesus crucified on the cross. You have to understand that this profoundest humility is the profoundest of all glory. We will be singing about this for all eternity. Properly understood, there is no greater glory accomplishment feat than what Jesus does. And this is the honor to which he invites us. You take up your cross and follow me. You join me in this glory. This isn't, I mean, this is better than like Elon Musk saying, hey, come be my apprentice and share my fortune and let's build stuff together. Or, you know, Vladimir Putin being like, okay, hey, come on over. We, I'm going to make you royalty and you can fight with me. Um, you know, it is Alexander the Great saying, hey, you're going to be my right-hand man as we conquer the known world. I mean, this is, that's all dust under the feet of Christ. And so through this suffering to which he's calling you, this victory of faith, through the suffering, this victory of faith over your sinful nature, over the world, over the devil, this faithfulness unto God that he reckons as perfect and complete righteousness. This is, this is a glory that shines for all eternity. This is where our shame becomes our glory. And our sin becomes the very thing we conquer. Our death becomes the very thing we conquer. And we conquer it by faith in the Son. So I'm sorry for being so long-winded again. But when you embrace and understand what this really is, I mean, objectively, factually, really is from an eternal perspective, there is no higher calling or honor. Don't give it up and become worthless. Don't lose your saltiness and be unfit for anything and be trampled under men's feet and be worthless. Don't 
throw away this glory that has been bestowed upon you, this glory, this eternal and everlasting glory to which you have been called in Christ Jesus. And I, so I think that all of that is the sense and nature of this teaching of Christ as well. So I see I've taken us over. I, am, I apologize for being so wordy, so verbose tonight, but at um, 7.32, we, we better call it. So I'll hang, out, um, I'll hang out for a minute in case anybody's got any questions. But for those of you who are maybe comments or things you tweaked that I said, that's all fine. Um, but for those that need to take off, uh, let's just close up tonight with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, thanks, Pastor. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to being uh, present with you all again uh, next week. Yeah. Thanks, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. You bet. bet. Yeah, thanks, Pastor. Appreciate you leading. Yeah, thanks for accommodating me. I and the family stuff that popped up here. Appreciate it. All right, gentlemen. Well, uh, any questions or anything? Um, those of you who are still hanging out, anything you want to discuss, or uh, otherwise, I'll I'll just check out here. Well, just one quick question. So, uh, in twenty five, verse twenty five. So the crowds are hearing this. Uh, as we sit here as Christians, we hear this as a first commandment kind of thing, right? Understanding Christ's divinity. Do you have any thoughts on how the crowds might have heard that? Were they hearing this as a claim of uh, Yahweh, or were they just, oh, this is a pretty high bar for this this n- new teacher? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it is deeply. I, I think for those who are who are reflective, it's a deeply disturbing thing that he's just said because it, it's jarring them out of, hey, we're following this guy because. You know, he casts out demons and he heals people and he gives free bread and, you know, it's like better than cable TV. And uh, there's all these benefits. And then he turns and makes these absolutist claims. I think it's uh, like for those who are paying attention and not just along for the ride, I think it's very jarring. I think it's very um, antithetical. I don't think it sits well with them. I, I think. And it's something that I've become more and more aware of in the Gospels is the hostility that the Lord has, um, not only to the demons, but to the crowds that are following him. And it's not until Pentecost that the words of the Lord are revisited and re-understood in precisely the way we're comprehending them, sort of, as you put it, I think first commandment type stuff. I think at the time, the, upon first hearing, it's just off-putting. I think it's very similar to John 6, where everybody finally you know, takes off. And Jesus is like, are you all going to take off too? Um, 
Jesus, and I'm kind of beating this drum, but Jesus is anything but a used car salesman saying, how can I make this easier for you? He rebuffs people. He insults people. He pushes people away. Um, he's got no time for the fact that they don't get it. Uh, he chastises his disciples when they don't get it. He calls them, oh, ye of little faith. Um, there's, there's a lot of hostility to the pre Pentecost followers of Jesus. It's not until Pentecost that they begin to follow him in a way and understand him in a way that he approves of. <laughs> I think that might, that, that's over. I mean, that's a generalization. There's exceptions to that, of course. Ironically, those exceptions are usually Gentiles that are, I'm thinking of the, the Canaanite woman, I'm thinking of the centurion thinking of those that show faith um, that really truly impresses Christ and astonishes Christ because he's just dealing with a crowd that is out to lunch and doesn't get it. So he doesn't lower the bar, you know, that's, uh, uh, and, but I don't think that's like a particularly a law thing either. I, it's just a Jesus thing. It's like, if you're going to be part of this, this is, you have to be born again. He says to Nicodemus, like, this is going to be everything. It's not. It's not something you can keep one foot in the old world and one foot in the new. You know, you follow him when you feel like it. That's not the program he's come to bring. All right. Good night, gentlemen.